Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Michael Calvi was perhaps the most high-profile and most successful foreign investor in Russia. But after more than two decades doing business here, he's now under house arrest over a deal that went wrong. Mr. Calvi is the most prominent foreign uh, investor in, in Russia. Without a doubt, he is the superstar. He's the one that has survived the crashes, the crises, the geopolitical tensions. As others have bailed, he's stayed. We'll speak to Henry Foy of the Financial Times about what's next for Calvi and about the business climate in Russia. And later, for years, journalists have tracked the Kremlin's covert wars by following soldiers' social media posts. But new legislation means that that may be about to end. Primarily what soldiers have been giving away in uh, the Russia-Ukraine war context is their location, which you would think isn't such a big deal. Uh, Only the Russian military and the Russian government uh, is trying to pretend that it's not involved in the war in Ukraine, and that's when it becomes a big deal. We'll speak with Simon Ostrowski, a journalist who famously tracked Russian servicemen in Ukraine, about the new laws. First up, Michael Calvi, the founder of the Moscow-based private equity fund manager Baring Vostok, was seen as someone who understood and thrived in the complex world of Russian business. Now, the 51-year-old fluent Russian speaker has landed up under house arrest for fraud. He denies the charges. Joining us in the studio is Henry Foy, Financial Times Bureau Chief and his very well-behaved rescue dog, Inca. Henry, thank you very much for coming back in the program. Thank you very much. Tell us briefly, what's the backstory here? How did Calvi end up in detention? Well, I mean, I guess the story begins in 1994. He's uh, an M&A banker, EBRD executive, who comes to Russia um, with the belief that he can invest in the industry here, that he can, that he believes in the in the Russia story. And essentially, over 25 years, he does that. He puts billions of dollars into this economy, builds very good relationships with 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 other businesses, with with government, with uh, the administration, and essentially has a great track record of. of of encouraging other foreign investors to put their money into Russia through him, through his fund and Bering Vostok. Uh, then, um, over the last few years, they've, they've made investments around the place, but but this one specific one into Bank Vostochny, a, a small, well, mid-sized top 30 bank, which focuses on the east of Russia, uh, and Bering Vostok owns um, just over 50% of that. Now, at, at some point uh, last year, and this was picked up in the local papers around uh, around the autumn of, of last year, there was a shareholder dispute um, with the minority shareholder in the bank over control, over, over the chairmanship, and a, a number of arbitration cases in London. Now, of course, a lot of this is 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 prejudiced by the case, and and we should we should watch out what we're what we're saying. But 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 it looks like it, and Mr. Carvey has said this uh, in his trials, so in his hearings, sorry, court hearings so far, that he believes what has happened to him is a result of that of that uh, that that uh, conflict between him and the other shareholders. 
Um, and in short, um, he is now being investigated for for a large scale fraud alongside uh, alongside uh, some of his other um, bearing executives, and uh, he currently is under a two month uh, imprisonment, facing potentially ten ten years in jail. He's not the first foreign businessman to be to be locked up to face difficulties in Russia. There is there's there's context here. Can you tell us a little bit about? about that context. Absolutely. Uh, I think the most important thing to note before we go into the context is that Mr. Calvi is the most prominent foreign uh, investor in Russia. Without a doubt, he is the superstar. He's the one that has survived the crashes, the crises, the geopolitical tensions. As others have bailed, he's stayed and has made a point, uh, in in fact, probably most notably to the Moscow Times when he said, you know, when others are running away, we want to uh, keep investing, words to that that meaning. Um, Of course, the the obvious comparison that springs to mind is Bill Browder, uh, who was a who was a major investor, uh, but clashed with Gazprom uh, and was, in his words, hounded out of the country by by the security services, by the the power, if you like, the state. Uh, and um, but the difference with Michael Calvey is that he said, "I am not like Mr. Bill Browder. I'm not going to run away. I'm committed to this country. Uh, I've done nothing wrong, and I plead my innocence." But I am not someone that is going to, to 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 do a runner. Essentially, if you let me out, I, I'm going to fight this case. And I think that, frankly, is what has led to this outpouring of support from Russian business leaders, uh, some Russian politicians, uh, people connected with the government, people connected with with big business, uh, Kremlin-connected businesses as well, mm-hmm. saying, you know, this this is a, a scary prospect. This is something that needs to be looked into. There must have been some kind of mistake. And and as I said, a lot of that comes back to the fact that that Mr. Calvi is separating himself from others, other foreign investors that have come here and have been put under pressure and have run away uh, uh, for fear of their lives. And and, and quite rightly, that the, they they had, can make that decision. But Mr. Calvi said, I'm, I'm committed to this country. And um, and and I think that is what makes this something of a, a, a litmus test that is uh, far more important than the ones that have come before. During his annual State of the Nation uh, address. On Wednesday, Putin said, "Honest businessmen should should not go around should not go around uh, being afraid of criminal prosecution." Is, is is that likely to to reassure business business foreign businessmen doing uh, doing work here doing business here? I think it it sort of muddies the waters a bit more. I mean. Uh, Taken at face value, of course, he would say something like that. I mean, that is what any government should say about any any economy. In light of what happened last week, I think a lot of people read into that that this is this is Mr. Putin's way of saying either I don't fully agree with this, or I think there should be more more to be more to be said and and keep the story in the news. And of course, that puts pressure on his ministers to answer questions from from the press. And I think yesterday there were a number of. Uh, guests in the hall and uh, during listening to Mr. Putin's address that afterwards were asked their opinion. So that that is one way of looking at it. The, the other way is is that that was a very cynical thing to say. Um, one of the men who is uh, accusing uh, Mr. Calvi, uh, one of the lead witnesses, I guess, in, in, in the case is somebody who is close to the Kremlin who Mr. Putin has appointed as one of the senior directors to what is known as the ASI, which is a pro-entrepreneur uh, organization that was essentially designed by the Kremlin to clean up business, to stop this kind of thing happening. And now you have one of the lead directors of that uh, essentially um, pushing for uh, a conviction that that if is found to be made on dubious evidence would, would shatter the, the intentions of that 
body. Um, this is also a man who who became close to Mr. Putin in in in, in the in 2011, and Mr. Putin essentially signed off on him creating a bank um, that has that has helped him become a bit of a figure in the Russian finance world. So, so yeah, it, it, obviously with, with, with things that Mr. Putin says, with statements from the Kremlin, you have to look for actions rather than words. Um, uh, Mr. Peskov, Mr. Putin's spokesman over the last week has been quite cagey and, and, and quite uh, non-committal on the subject. And, and this, we were all sort of waiting to hear what Mr. Putin would say. I'm frankly not convinced that there's a lot of sincerity in that, but I think, uh, you know, over the next few weeks and how the trial progresses will really show how serious uh, this government, this country, this judicial system is to protecting the rights of uh, entrepreneurs, investors, and, and specifically, specifically foreign investors. We've we've already seen uh, foreign direct investment in, in Russia plummet last year from something uh, something around 20, 27 to, to $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Um how do you see this case playing out both for investment in Russia, but also for Calvi? Bit of a litmus test uh, for the entire approach to foreign investors. And if, if Russia is serious about continuing to get investment from, I mean, we're talking specifically here, the, the West, from Western countries, Europe and the US, then it needs to make sure that this case is either is, is handled correctly. Um, it's transparent, it's open, and whatever verdict is reached is one that everyone can see was, was the clear and correct verdict. You're absolutely right that FDI has fallen off. The Kremlin has made huge uh, noise about its its new friends in China, new friends in the Gulf states, specifically Saudi Arabia, money from Qatar. This is not making up for the dramatic fall off in Western investment. And while some of that is tied to pressure from Western governments, some of that is tied to fears over sanctions, a lot of it is tied to the fact that for a long, long time now, there have been fears uh, amongst the business community, amongst foreign investors, that the rule of law and the protection of private property is just not sacrosanct here. And if you fall into a situation where the wrong political power is against you, you have to be on the lookout for trouble. Henry, thanks very much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. This week, the State Duma voted overwhelmingly to ban Russian soldiers from using social media. Failure to comply could lead to disciplinary measures. The move comes years after investigative journalists first started using social media accounts of soldiers to shed light on Russia's covert role in conflicts from Ukraine to Syria. Joining us on the line is Simon Ostrovsky, a Moscow Times alumnus who tracked Russian soldiers in Ukraine using data pulled from their social media accounts in a now famous documentary for Vice News called Selfie Soldiers. Lucky for us, the soldier who posted it didn't turn off his location settings. So we followed the pin on the map out into the countryside and we've already seen three really big army encampments with uh, hundreds of vehicles in them. You can really feel the military presence out here. Simon, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. First of all, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what investigative journalists, including yourself, have gleaned from soldiers' social media accounts? Soldiers uh, actually give quite a lot of information through their social media accounts, just like anybody, actually. I mean, uh, people think that you're giving away, um, you know, your location only if you've got the location settings switched on um, on your cell phone or on your uh, camera when you take a picture and then those things are embedded in the photograph itself, but actually that's not true. You know, any photograph can give away where a person is located just simply from looking at the photograph and seeing what's in the background and trying to match it um, with uh, with another map, Google Maps, or, you know, the environment of a city or a place or a town or a field or anything like that. And so, um, 
primarily what soldiers have been giving away in uh, the Russia-Ukraine war context is their location, which you would think isn't such a big deal. Uh, only the Russian military and the Russian government uh, is trying to pretend that it's not involved in the war in Ukraine, and that's when it becomes a big deal. I did a documentary film in 2015 called Selfie Soldiers, and it was uh, looking at the social media posts of one particular um, service member named Bato Dambayev, who was from the Buryatia region of Russia in Siberia. Um, and the way I did that was sort of sifted through hundreds and hundreds of uh, VK accounts, which are the Russian equivalent of Facebook, um, until I found a soldier uh, who seemed careless enough to have posted a photograph uh, from the Ukrainian um, battlefield. And it wasn't just a question of finding a soldier who'd, you know, taken a snap and put it on his uh, profile page. I needed to find somebody who was basically dumb enough to have taken a selfie or at least have his face visible um, in the photograph. And and it'd be possible to discern that it was Ukraine from the background of the photo. And that's what I found in Bato Dambayev. So, uh, you know, a lot of other journalists had done um, these kinds of uh, investigations where they'd find found photographs from, from, from soldiers fighting in Ukraine when Russia was um, denying its involvement there. But my investigation departed um, from, from some of the other ones uh, when I went out there and reenacted the photograph so that I could show the viewer that I had actually tracked down the specific spot that the photo, the photos had been taken physically and then taken a similar photograph of myself in the same position um, so that it was kind of hard to deny that that place on the photograph um, was actually in Ukraine. Why do you think it's taken so long for the government to resolutely clamp down on this? It seems obvious. As soon as these reports of the geolocation of soldiers first came out a couple of years ago, you would think that lawmakers would move to make this stop. Well, I think there's two answers to that question. And the first answer is that the Duma's bureaucratic process is quite drawn out. Um, legislators need to propose a law. Uh, then it needs to go through a first reading. Then it needs to go through a second reading. Then it needs to go through a third reading. And then, you know, we're actually not at the end of the legislative process yet. So uh, it's not 100% certain when the law is going to go into effect because the Federation Council, which is, you know, another rubber stamp chamber of the Russian parliament has to sign off on it. And then the president has to sign off on it, too. Um, the second reason, I think, is probably the, the real reason that... Um, you know, there hasn't been a massive hurry to do this, which is probably that the law is impossible to enforce. Uh, and it's more declarative in nature uh, and probably not going to be extraordinarily effective. So really, what's the rush in trying to get it on the books when it's just not going to work? Uh, the issue here is that, you know, part of the Russian army is conscripted. So you're talking about a group of young people, teenagers, essentially, uh, who would rather be anywhere else and um, who's, uh, who you have to pry their cell phones from their cold, dead fingers, really, um, before they'll give them up. Um, and there's a new crop of conscripts every year. So it's not like there's institutional learning in the army where uh, you have professional soldiers who have been there for many, many years fighting the wars and then they see what happens when the um, social media 
you know, exposes the location of their comrades and that leads to bad consequences. When you've got a new, a brand new group of people coming into the army every year, they don't, they don't even know about the stuff that happened during the Russia-Ukraine war in 2014 and 2015 because they were still in high school at that time. Um, there's actually another problem uh, that Russia specifically faces in terms of uh, banning soldiers from um, posting on social media and giving up valuable uh, information. And that's the use of these quasi-legal, I'd, I'd say even illegal uh, uh, mercenary groups like the Wagner Group, um, which, you know, by definition, don't follow laws uh, because they are illegal themselves under Russian law. So why would they be worrying about, you know, a Russian piece of legislation that only applies to uh, official military service members? So if you've got mercenaries who are operating in Ukraine, uh, direct, uh, direction from the Russian government, operating in Syria, operating in Central African Republic, operating in Venezuela and doing these uh, critical uh, missions from the perspective of the Kremlin, um, then they're kind of giving the game away with their own social media. So you haven't really solved that problem with this legislation. The text of of the new legislation suggests that this is a defensive measure that terrorist organizations and foreign intelligence groups can target troops based on the trail that they leave online. What do you make of that explanation? Is it legitimate? Well, I mean, up to a point, I think it's a question of uh, balance because, you know, when when fighting any sort of threat, you don't want to overcorrect in the, in the direction of throwing the bathwater or the baby out with the bathwater. And, um, the, the legislation is quite draconian because it says that the soldiers, uh, have to, in many cases, actually not even carry any cell phone of any kind. It's not just about being banned from having a Facebook or having a VK account. Um, you know, the soldiers can't carry a cell phone. Can you imagine uh, living in the modern world um, and not having a cell phone on you and trying to figure out how to get just from point A to point B in a city? It's ridiculous. So um, I think, you know, an example of why potentially this might be uh, overzealous is the approach that the United States military has taken, um, which is to recognize that it's impossible to battle social media. They've actually published figures that say around 80% of American service members have uh, a social media account of some kind. I'm surprised it's not higher. Um, and that uh, they encourage uh, their members to use it so that they can stay in touch with the uh, family, but they also recognize that it's a potent uh, public relations tool and a potent recruitment tool. So what they've done is they've said uh, they've regulated it and they've uh, made very strict um, rules about how you can use social media and how you can post and what you can't post. Um, but they haven't gone as far as banning it outright. Uh, and I think you'll agree that the United States, um, like Russia, also faces uh, a potential for terrorist attacks. But um, they haven't concluded that banning social media is, for, for soldiers is the way to go to prevent that. If the military personnel actually comply, and we've talked about how that's a pretty big if, does this mark a definitive end to the West's ability to keep tabs on the Russian military abroad? Any law is only as effective as its enforcement. There's, there's plenty of um, laws on the books in Russia right now against corruption. 
That doesn't mean that there's no corruption in Russia just because those laws exist. And I think the same goes for this. If they're going to be quite draconian and enforcing it and making a show of, uh, if they're going to be quite draconian and enforcing it and making a show of uh, prosecuting lots of different people um, under this legislation, then it has the potential to probably be uh, effective. But you've also got to remember that the Russian army is something like, I hope I don't get this wrong, but I think it's something like a million people. Um, and, and keeping a million people off of their cell phones just uh, doesn't sound realistic to me. I think what we will see happen is that people will open up uh, social media pages under pseudonyms. Um, they re Their relatives will continue posting um, things about their uh, sons and husbands who are in the army. And so there's still always going to be a lot of information, and friends as well. And so there's still always going to be a lot of information uh, to glean from the internet for researchers like myself and others to uh, piece together what's going on. Simon, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. And to finish off, on Monday, the fire services in the southern Russian city of Ufa were called out to a very peculiar type of, well, shall we say emergency. The woman we hear in this video clip is standing in front of a single-story wooden house nearly buried in snow, and she reportedly called the fire department to help her extinguish her burning soul. An official in the emergency services told the Ria Novosti news agency that they had found the woman in a state of alcohol intoxication, acting abnormally, singing, and claiming that her soul is on fire. Ria also reported that a probe has been launched and that the woman may face a fine for issuing a false alarm. There have been no further updates on the state of her soul. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer. And thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News.